I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks. scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio. I want to fail. I'd rather choose very, very difficult things and have to be resilient if I don't make it right. than choose mediocre goals. So it wasn't always about swimming. It was about living the biggest life I can live. I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both, where I get into some of today's biggest questions with people that I admire. You know, I'm always interested in where people get their resilience, because look, everybody gets knocked down in life. You know, some get knocked down more than once. And the question really is, as my mother used to tell me on a regular basis, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you get back up. Today, I'm talking to three resilient guests. Diana Nyad, who you just heard. You know, in 2013, she became the first person ever to swim from Cuba to Florida without a shark cage. She swam for 53 hours. She faced incredible dangers like lethal box jellyfish attacks, Gulf Stream currents, exhaustion, delirium. And she did it all when she was 64 years old. I'm also going to be talking to Angela Duckworth. Angela is a psychologist and the writer of a terrific book, a New York Times bestseller called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And she's going to explain to us where she got her passion for studying grit and resilience. But first, writer and comedian Sarah Cooper. Now, if this were any other comedian, I'd want to play a clip of their work for you. But I don't think that's going to uh, help us here because Sarah Cooper is famous not for what she does with her own words, but what she does with the words of Donald Trump. She appears in videos where she is lip syncing the exact words that came out of Donald Trump's mouth in his public statements. She became an internet sensation, and I was just totally blown away by 
how, in her words, his words could be understood as even more incoherent and, frankly, unbelievable. Now, before she started doing that, she wrote two books based on her time working in corporate America. In 2016, she wrote 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings and Two Years Later, How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings, Non-Threatening Leadership Strategies for Women. And, you know, obviously I wish that had come out sooner. She has a Netflix comedy special that will be out later this fall, and she's working on a television series for CBS. Why include Sarah Cooper in an episode about resilience? Well, for starters, it takes a lot of resilience to listen to Donald Trump over and over and over. And more importantly, her videos make us laugh and help us all to stay resilient during an incredibly tough time. I am delighted to have her on the podcast. I have to say, Sarah, that um, you and your humor has uh, gotten me through some tough days. So I have to start by thanking you. You know, you came to my attention, as you did, I think, to the rest of the world, initially by your videos that were lip syncing our president. (laughs) And it was so brilliant, so extraordinarily on point. And I'm interested, how did you get started doing that? I mean, Where did that idea even come from, Sarah? You know, it really came from a combination of being on TikTok and seeing people doing lip syncing and then also just watching our president sort of fumble his way through all of these press briefings and these uh, coronavirus task force meetings. And I was immediately reminded of being in corporate America and just watching usually men kind of, you know, talk their way through situations when they actually haven't said anything at all. And so I was just really fascinated by the words because the words meant nothing. And yet people were nodding and agreeing. And so it was really out of a little bit of jealousy because I would love to be able to get away with just saying nothing and having people (laughs) think that I'm brilliant. You know, that would just be amazing. Um, And so I really didn't set out to to be a, a, an impersonator of this guy. I didn't. I, it was really more like, could I get away with that? And one way to figure out if I could get away with it is to just take exactly what he's saying. The exact audio clip hasn't been changed at all, and see what it feels like to have those words come out of my mouth. How would Sarah Cooper act if she could just be in a meeting? and uh, saying absolutely nothing. And um, it really, I think for a lot of people brought to the forefront what everyone's been feeling, but we've been gaslighted into thinking that we're the crazy ones because everyone thinks this is fine. And once you take away that suit and the, the, the podium and the presidential seal and all the people agreeing with him, and you're just left with me in my sweatshirt being, you know, <laughs> saying I'm going to form a committee and the committee is going to be really great. Um, you, you realize, okay, yeah, no, he's not saying anything. And uh, that's really yeah. where it started. I am curious, like, did you expect the overwhelming tsunami of a response once you got started? I I didn't. I mean, I made a few of them really short clips at first and people thought they were fine and and good. But really, I mean, when I made the first one that went viral, I, I didn't realize that it would go so viral. But then beyond that, I just kept getting good material and I just kept (laughs) making more videos and it just became this sort of unstoppable thing that changed my life and changed my career. And, you know, I'm literally in LA right now sitting in Maya Rudolph's office because I'm (laughs) on the set basically of my Netflix special because of all of this. Oh, that's so great. It really just took off in a way that I had no idea. I had sort of given up my entertainment dreams, to be honest with you, because I wrote these books. They didn't really do that well. I would I would say, you know, the hunt that my first book came out a month before the election. Mm. And, you know, any chance for any press that I was ever going to get was just completely <laughs> overshadowed. But, you know, I would say it was probably a hard election for you. Oh, <laughs> it yeah. was also oh, yeah. a hard election <laughs> for me because of my book. <laughs> I mean, for many reasons. 
but yeah, so just just to have this resurgence of interest in the books and this idea that, oh, wow, I, maybe I actually will have an entertainment career has just been amazing. Does this identification that you now have with lip syncing Trump, does it make you feel different at all? When you're speaking in your own voice, are you still, you know, in your worst nightmare, still hearing his voice in some way? I get this, asked this a lot because it, I do have to listen to him over and over again. So you would think his voice would get stuck in my head, but it just doesn't. Images get stuck in my head. Images and feelings, mm-hmm. you know, those things will bring me back and they will get stuck. But audio, sound goes in one ear and out the other. So thankfully, that doesn't happen to me. My husband, on the other hand, gets very, very, very annoyed having to hear this over and over again. So I don't blame him. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. The only thing that worries me sometimes is, is people will send me clips and they're like, you have to do this one, you have to do this one. And sometimes I'll listen and I'll be like, oh, I see what he was trying to say. <laughs> So I, I'm like, wait, wait, now I, now I understand him, you know? It's... Wait, stop. You know, you can't do this anymore. This is infecting you. Right. Uh, but I want to go back to before you started lip syncing Trump, before you put that on TikTok, you know, you were using your comedy even before that to talk about social issues. Give our listeners a little bit of a bio here. I mean, what as you said earlier, made you feel passionate about entertaining and acting and comedy? And what is it you wanted to do with that? Well, I always just love making people laugh. And I think that just comes from I'm the youngest child. I kind of was the one who, you know, if there was ever any tension in our family, I was the one who sort of diffused it with some humor or jokes or whatever. And it was just like, if I could make people feel calm again and feel happy, it just made me feel, I think, useful. You know, mm-hmm. I think it just made me, it just gave me a purpose. Like I can make people feel comfortable. And for better or worse, I will say that, you know, it can backfire in terms of if your goal is always just to make people feel comfortable, you can forget about yourself and you can forget about, hey, well, maybe you're not happy right now, you know, and maybe that's not your role right now. And so it's, I think making people laugh has sort of been the number one thing. And then just, Realizing I have a lot of things I want to share my opinion on is kind of the second thing that is exciting about entertainment. And satire in particular, I love just because you can have a message without feeling preachy. You know, like with non-threatening leadership strategies for women, I wasn't telling women, hey, you're doing something wrong or you're saying something wrong or you should do this or do this. I was simply holding up a mirror and saying, this is what happens. This is what I do. Sometimes I minimize myself in rooms. Sometimes I add way too many exclamation points in my emails just because I want to feel, you know, like I'm being real nice. Um, (laughs) And and it's just like holding a mirror up and, and people will write me and they'll say, you know what? I realized I do that. I kind of ask a question when I want to make a statement. Right. You know, I do that. And I realize I don't want to do that anymore. And they were able to realize that on their own without me saying, hey, don't do this anymore. And so that's what I, I, that's kind of the position that I enjoy being in is that I can make people laugh. I can make them think if they'd like to think. I, I can make them learn something and change if they would like to do that. But other than that, I've given them a moment of levity that, you know, maybe they wouldn't have had before. You know, when I think about humor, I often think about it as being one of the best tools we have for resilience. Mm -hmm. I mean, to find the humor in even the worst situation, to try to, you know, connect on that level with people, it must be part of the motivation that you had and still have that, you know, look, we're going through a hard time in our country right now. And what keeps you laughing despite everything that is, you know, happening around us? I think I just go through waves where, you know, after the the election, I was just so distraught for months. I I couldn't even write this book because my publisher wanted me to write something about women. But I was so angry that I was just like, no, there's nothing funny about this. There's nothing funny about this. I'm just angry. And I think eventually I was able to sort of find a way to the humor, just of like, look at all these rules, look at all these, these, these things we tell each other, wear this, don't wear this, smile, don't smile, wear your hair like Mm -hmm. this, don't do this, don't, it's like, you can't follow all these rules, we can't, it's impossible. And I mean, that was one of the things, you know, with your campaign. 
I was so angry that they said you needed to smile. I was like, why does she need to smile? She doesn't need to smile. <laughs> like, let her smile if she wants to smile. And if she doesn't want to smile, she doesn't have to smile. How does that sound? You know what I mean? I was so angry at that. Because that's how they get you. That's how they get this, oh, she's not authentic. Well, maybe it's because you told her to smile when she didn't want to smile. Maybe that's why she's not right. authentic right. to you, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like this whole idea of authenticity and being true to yourself. And yet there's this world set up that you have to fit into. And so wait, how am I supposed to be true to myself when there's this world that I have to fit into and play their games when I I don't want to, you know? And so I was able to find the humor in that of just thinking about it and realizing, okay, all of these rules in a book, realize you can't follow them. That's the joke. You know what? That is the joke. Yeah. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I keep thinking, Sarah, about, you know, how resilience is such a key part of anybody's life. I mean, we all get knocked down. We all have to figure out how to get back up. And when you think about, you know, the work that you've done and your commitment, despite the setbacks, what got you up in the morning? You know, you said, well, you tried to be in comedy. That didn't work. But what kept you going? You know, I just, I feel very blessed to have a father that just instilled in me gratefulness. And so I just, Mm -hmm. even when things weren't going well, I'll tell you like when How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings came out, I went to a book signing, two people showed up. You know, I I had situations like that, but I had my husband there and he was still taking pictures of me like it was a big deal (laughs) and it wasn't a big deal at all. No one was there, but it was just like, no, I still have a book. I did a book. Mm -hmm. I made a book, you know, like just looking at the small things and just being appreciative of those small things just helped me sort of keep going. And just knowing my favorite quote is from um, Vanilla Sky and it's basically um, every passing minute is another chance to turn it all around. Yeah, I love that. I just love that. Every minute you can do something different. You can choose to do something different. You can choose to try something. And that's what I did with these TikToks. I was just trying something. I didn't know if it was going to work. And so knowing you have that opportunity to just try something, it helps me because I never feel like I'm stuck and I can't do anything. I know there's mm-hmm. always something I can do. I There's always something I can try, you know? I really relate to that. I think that For many people, your TikTok videos um, were lifelines, Um, you know, the kind of hope that things can get better and can change. You know, you came along and you kind of helped to strip it all down and explain without doing anything other than repeating his words. You gave people the idea like, wait, I don't have to listen to this. I don't have to believe that. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge contribution to resilience, the resilience of individuals and I hope the resilience of our country, not to put too fine a point on it, (laughs) but I just can't thank you enough for what you've done. And I'm so in your corner. I can't wait to see your program and see what happens to you next. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm eternally grateful for you, just your commitment and your dedication and your just unwavering focus on what you think is important and what you know in your heart to be true has always been an inspiration to me and will continue to be an inspiration to me. So I just want to say how honored I am and how appreciative I am of you. Well, thank you. Since my conversation with Sarah, President Trump, as we all know, has tested positive for COVID-19, been hospitalized, returned. Sarah hasn't put out any new videos yet, and I wanted to check in with her to see what she makes of this latest plot twist. In light of recent events, I wanted to check in with you again. Your videos do such an excellent job of highlighting how absurd Many of Trump's statements are, but over the last few weeks, his statements and his actions around COVID-19 have not been so much ridiculous as actually dangerous. He's out there telling people he understands the virus now and it's not something to be afraid of and refusing to participate remotely in the next presidential debate. What goes through your mind when you hear him say these things? Well, it starts to make me reconsider all of the videos I've been making just because at this point, it seems like there might be something really wrong with him. You know, I've always seen him as someone who is very sinister and calculated. But at this point, and I think Nancy Pelosi brought up 25th Amendment today too, but it it does feel like there's something genuinely wrong with him. And so I, it's almost like, do you make fun of someone who has some sort of problem (laughs) that you don't Mm -hmm. know what that problem is? But it is also so dangerous that I don't want to contribute to the propaganda that he's spreading. So 
it is a weird time for my particular kind of satire because I want to highlight how insane a lot of the things he's saying, but if he's actually insane and he's actually saying things that are are going to genuinely hurt people and inspire other people to hurt other people, then I don't want to, you know, spread that message. I agree with you. We're at a different point now. It is scary to think that we have still three or four weeks, something like that. I mean, it's it's a very tense time of just trying to get to that election and and hopefully see the light at the end of the tunnel. I agree with you. I mean, the tension just seems to build. I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a doctor, and she was saying she sees so many people now, it's just exploded in terms of you know, her patients saying that they're anxious, they're agitated, they're depressed, and they link it to this election. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just are literally, you know, overcome by what they're experiencing when they watch Trump. But I think it is a, you know, a real sign of resilience that more and more people are voting early, more and more people are speaking out, more and more people in the press and elsewhere are calling him out. So, you know, maybe that's a good sign that assuming we get through this election and we, Mm -hmm. you know, retire him, Mm -hmm. we can kind of pull together again. Mm -hmm. And I'm praying for that. Me too, Sarah. (laughs) Me too. Keep an eye out for Sarah's upcoming comedy special. It's called Sarah Cooper, Everything's Fine, and it comes out on Netflix October 27th. One of the reasons I'm interested in resilience is that it's not just something that you're born with or you aren't. And I've learned a lot about that from research that is being done about how to cultivate resilience in ourselves and others. And you know, nothing's more important than helping kids be more resilient, especially right now with so much uncertainty in their world. So that's why I'm looking forward to talking with Angela Duckworth. She's a psychologist. She's a MacArthur genius. She's the writer of Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Grit. Actually, that's one of my favorite words. You have been called gritty by yeah, I've, I've you know, had a Meryl few Streep and other people. <laughs> gritty, gritty moments, you know. <laughs> You're very gritty. Um, but I guess I want to start with having you explain what grit is. When I talk about grit, I, I mean this combination of passion and perseverance for especially long-term and personally meaningful goals. Um, and I say passion and perseverance because it's not just you know, working hard and being tenacious. I mean, that is part of grit. And I think that's where the overlap with resilience, you know, the topic of this show. But grit, unlike resilience, um, means that you're passionate about it. It resonates with your values. It interests you. You feel like a kid when you're doing it. So perseverance and passion for long-term goals turns out to be not at all correlated with talent or intelligence, uh, but very predictive of long-term achievement. Tell us a little bit about your own life, and if you can, reflect on what brought you to this particular subject. Well, we may or may not have this in common, but I was certainly raised in a family that was dominated by my father's obsession with achievement. He really was like obsessed with the outliers uh, in human accomplishment. And, and then um, in our own family, he would make comparisons of my sister, my brother and me, you know, who was doing well in the, in the horse race of achievement. I, by the way, I'm not recommending this. I'm just describing <laughs> my childhood. Um, and so when I grew up, I wondered whether there was something else other than our our, maybe our innate talent that that might determine, you know, what we might achieve. And I think that's what led me to the study uh, of grit. Um, I was also, by the way, um, a teacher, classroom teacher in New York City and San Francisco public schools for uh, several years. And when I saw my students at the beginning of the year, it was clear that some of them had, you know, more of a facility for math, which is what I taught. But I was very surprised at the end of the year that the students who had really learned the most you know, weren't always the ones who were, you know, quite obviously bright at the beginning. And, and so much of it was a kind of dedication, a sustained interest and effort in spite of setbacks, which is, I think, the heart of resilience. Well, I think there are similarities between our fathers. My father was 
absolutely set on making sure that uh, I did as well as I could in school. I would bring home, you know, straight A's and he'd say, you must go to an easy school. Uh, (laughs) It was his way of, I think, trying to motivate me. And it's the only way he knew to express his hopes uh, was through this kind of competitive, comparative approach that I believe, you know, fathers like ours actually thought was a way of showing love and appreciation to keep pushing uh, their children. And luckily for us, their daughters, not just their sons. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, when you think about those students that you taught, because I read about how you began to, you know, think through what was it that made some kids successful, even if they didn't start with the greatest understanding of math or some other subject, and other kids maybe fade, uh, who looked like they had uh, potential. What did that then lead you to decide to do? Well, first I was frustrated with them. Um, And then as any halfway decent teacher would be, you realize that you're the problem, right? So at first I was like, why aren't they learning my my beautiful lesson plan? Like, how come it's not turning out the way I wanted to? And quickly, my frustration with my students turned into frustration with myself because I realized it was a limitation of me as a teacher that I wasn't accessing. I wasn't creating an on-ramp to what we were doing. And when I got frustrated, I eventually decided that my tactics were incredibly ham-fisted. Like, I mean, I tried to be nice, but I just was like, you know, if you could just, you know, put more effort in, you'll be successful. I mean, that doesn't work. Um, So what I decided to do is change my career trajectory a little bit, um, or a lot, I guess, and become a psychological scientist. It's not until I think we can understand why is it that when a child gives up, like they do, like what is going on in the millisecond before they put their pencil down and stop paying attention to what they're doing? Like what happens? And I, I realized that we needed more science on you know motivation and, and interest and effort in order that teachers and parents, um, by the way, could do more than just the kind of like well-intentioned but usually ineffectual sermonizing, um, at least that I was doing. So when you went back to school, how did you actually construct a program to look at this and pursue it as a professional academic interest? So I, I was a late bloomer in the sense of coming to graduate school um, in my, you know, whatever, fourth decade of life. But I knew what I wanted to study. I was like, I know exactly what I'm here to figure out. I wanted to understand the psychology of young people in moments of frustration, in moments of self-doubt. And then I wanted to figure out, you know, what turns things such that insecurity becomes confidence when the frustration becomes bearable. And I apprenticed to a, a very famous psychological scientist, um, Marty Seligman, who basically is the leading figure, um, or one of at least, in resilience. And I'll tell you maybe one insight that gives you a, a sense of how scientists like figure things out like this. You know, when you study something scientifically, you want to make a comparison. So if you want to study resilience, you want to find examples of resilience, but also examples of um, you know non-resilience, right, or, or giving up um, during difficulty. And Marty did exactly that when he was in graduate school. He studied animals. He studied dogs, for example. And he discovered that when animals are resilient, it is in part because they have control. Um, So if an animal is experiencing control over their adversity, even if the adversity is, in the case of the dogs he was studying, like mild electric shocks, I mean, really painful, the control makes all the difference. When animals don't have control over adversity, it's what he coined um, as learned helplessness. And so I think the basic idea of the scientific method when applied to things like resilience is, you know, make systematic comparisons, find examples of what you're looking for, find examples of the opposite, and then, you know, systematically work your way through to kind of figure out what's going on underneath the surface. Everything you've said, obviously, has implications for parenting. How has your research impacted uh, your own parenting? So practically speaking, I think in terms of resilience, the most important thing I learned in my research was that, you know, left to their own devices, young people will shy away from hard things. Like it's way more fun to win than to lose. Um, It's way more fun to get the right answer than the wrong answer. And I could see my kids like shy away from hard things. So we made a rule in our family and we call it the hard thing rule. Um, And we said everybody in this family, including mom and dad, has to do a hard thing. 
Um, we instituted this when the girls were about kindergarten age. And the hard thing rule had three parts. One is that a hard thing is something that requires practice, um, like really trying to get better at something, you know, with feedback and, um, and not all the feedback is going to be positive. Second thing about the hard thing is that you can't quit in the middle. So if you've made a commitment to a track coach or a piano teacher and you said you've done, you know, you're going to do something for two months, then then you have to honor that commitment. And then the third thing, and I think this is so important, you know, I'm of Chinese heritage. My parents immigrated um, in the 50s and I don't really believe in tiger parenting. I think the third part is the most important part, which is that um, you get to choose your hard thing yourself. Nobody can tell you what your hard thing is. And I, I let my five-year-old, we, I should say, my husband and I, we let them choose even when they were in kindergarten. I mean, it was more choice because like mm-hmm. one year Lucy said she wanted to ride horses and I was like that is not on the list <laughs> uh, so anyway I, I I think that was all informed by science I love that idea you know giving them some control over the hard thing they choose but then they have to stick with that hard thing and they have to be willing to take the ups and the downs that come from trying something that's hard And, you know, I think about hard things that I've had to do. I mean, running for office was really hard. Uh, (laughs) Looked like it from the outside. (laughs) It was hard. It was hard the first time I tried it and never had done it for myself before and had to practice and practice and learn and learn. And it, you know, it was a passion and I had to persevere, uh, win or lose. And I assume you've had to do hard things. Like what are, you know, one or two of the hard things you had to deal with? You know, I told you that my dad was like, hmm, you know, how, how, how smart are, is this person? How's it? Well, one advantage, I will just say, of, of never thinking of yourself as the smartest person in the room is that like, wow, you are, at least for me, I think the way I interpreted that, I was like, I'm going to be the hardest working person here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, nobody's like, going to outwork me. Nobody's <laughs> going to outwork me, right? And, you know, I think that has been a, a, a certain kind of confidence. Like, you know, just the other day, I was in a conversation with uh, Danny Kahneman, who who's um, another hero of mine. He won the Nobel Prize in economics. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's the best living psychologist there is today. And we were having this conversation and we, I was trying to give him this, an idea about like the psychology of attention. And about 20 minutes in, he, he it was like playing chess with Gary Kasparov. He, he was like, <laughs> checkmate. And I was just, he was like, he was like, this idea is like full of holes. It's, it's hard. And I remember thinking, wow, like I am not as smart as Danny Kahneman when it comes to psychology. Uh, and I think I said something like that. But you know, I wasn't so afraid. I never thought of myself as that way. So I just said like, well, you know, I would like to talk about this more, but I think I'm going to need a week to like <laughs> on it. <laughs> recover. Um, to cover, <laughs> gather my wits, make some more notes, read some more. You were fierce in your desire to, you know, keep going, maybe take a deep breath and come back. I have so enjoyed talking to you and I hope this will be the first of many conversations because I am fascinated by what you do. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking with me and uh, say hello to your family. Say hello to those two daughters. Bye-bye. Angela's book is called Grit. She's a co-founder of Character Lab, which helps classrooms across the country create more resilient kids. And you can learn more about her and her research at AngelaDuckworth.com. I first heard about Diana Nyad really a long time ago because she had this amazing success record of swimming around the island of Manhattan across Lake Ontario. You know, she really was somebody who was of my vintage and was doing heroic, difficult things in the water. She took time out to be a sports broadcaster, and then I would see her covering sports, including the Olympics. And it looked like she was, you know, done with her own competitive swimming until she decided to try again. She had tried to swim from Cuba to Florida the first time when she was 28. When she was 61, she decided to try again and again and again. And then at age 64, she wanted to try once more. And she succeeded on her fifth try. That should give everybody a kind of boost about what's possible. As you'll hear, her zest for life puts the rest of us to shame. I think about your amazing career and how you really took on the challenge of long distance swimming 
What drew you to it? Because it's such a unique sport. You know, there are two layers to the answer to that question. One is, um, I was born in New York City, but by the time I was in second grade, so you're seven years old, I was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with the beautiful warm ocean right there. And I was good at swimming. I had a way of feeling the water and going through the water in a strong, fast way. So, of course, I wanted that. But honestly, way above that, I don't know why, Hillary, but I got the idea very early before the age of 10, that this whole thing was going to go by very quickly, that I better not waste any time. I may not be the best at what I do, but I want to live up to my potential. I want to help people the best I can. I want to be the best I am intellectually, physically. So I've been lucky to have a lot of attributes of energy that help me get up very early and live a gung-ho, oppressive kind of life all day long and go to sleep every night saying, Woo! I just couldn't have done any more with that day. <laughs> but I guess I'm getting around to saying it wasn't and it, it still is not just about swimming. I wasn't right. necessarily driven to I've got to swim this and I've got to be a swimmer. I was and I am all that. But it's more what can I do with this one, as Mary Oliver put it, wild and precious life of mine? I want to fail. I'd rather choose very, very difficult things and have to be resilient if I don't make it right. and, and have to be humble if I don't make it than choose mediocre goals. So it wasn't always about swimming. It was about living the biggest life I can live. Amen. And, you know, part of what I'm interested in is there are a lot of people who say to themselves, wow, I'm going to do something that is really big and it's going to fill me up and I'm going to make a mark. But then there are those who actually do it. And, you know, I've read your fabulous autobiography and just reading about the training that you subjected yourself to was <laughs> exhausting. Yeah. Describe that training regimen because it shows so clearly what it takes to say, okay, I want to do this, but hey, here's what I have to make sure I can do in order to be able to achieve yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. What does that actually look like day to day? Well, you know, it's it's tough. If you're going to swim for, let's say, what might be ostensibly 54 hours across Cuba to Florida, nonstop, never allowed to touch the boat. What are mm -hmm. you going to do to get ready for that? Well, you're not going to go swim 54 hours. You might as well go do the real thing. So you start doing, when you're not in shape yet, seven and eight hour swims. And mind you, uh, a swim like Manhattan Island is under eight hours. Now, later in the year, you're going to be up to 12, 13, 14 hour swims. You're in, lying in the fetal position at night. You can't get up because you're so darn exhausted. You can't get dinner, but you do get up the next day and you do 15 hours. Then you're up to 18 hours. Then you're up to 24 hours. And that's a lot of lonely, you know, isolated time. This sport is a, a case of sensory deprivation. You don't see much. You're turning your head 55 times a minute. You don't see anything but the side of the boat over here. And Bonnie, my intrepid, you know, handler, you dig down and get your mind disciplined and strong enough to make it through those lonely hours. So that's what it's about. Yeah, it's the shoulders. It's the body. You got to be a good swimmer, a strong swimmer. But more than anything, it's can the mind suffer and concentrate and refuse to give up for all those hours. That's what it's about. We'll be back right after this quick break. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing. Right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. 
It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should... Start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have any insights as to whether that resolve, that incredible resilience and grit, how do you evaluate the mix between kind of what's deep down inside you or just plain hard work that it takes? You know, is it learned? Is it something you can practice to achieve? How, how would you tell young people? If there were a bunch of young people listening and they, they were wondering, well, God, I, I, don't, I don't know that I could ever do anything that brave or that big, but I'd like to. How would you tell them to think about it? Yeah, it's, it's always, isn't it? It's the age-old nature-nurture conversation. So, you know, I, I don't remember any particular, you know, light bulb that went off to say, that's how I want to be. That's who I want to be. So I do think there is a lot of a genetic component, but I do believe that people all the world round have resolve. Now, it could be that they're not dreaming of, you know, changing their, they're not Nelson Mandela who wants to, you know, change the entire fabric of the future of the world and how we, we view equality. Um, but it could be that in their particular community, 
That's the way they live. And that's what they demand of their neighbors and their family. And isn't that equally important? Don't we think the world gets changed one family and one neighborhood at a time? So I admire, and I'm sure you do too, all kinds of people that the world will never hear of. You know, I have a neighbor uh, here in, in my neighborhood in Los Angeles who lost her husband to cancer and she was busy. Well, um, somebody else had trouble in the neighborhood and this woman who had very few resources, no time at all, three kids on her hands, mourning her husband, she's the one who went around all around the neighborhood to say, we gotta help this other neighbor. She needs our help. And Nyad, you're the little star of the neighborhood. Well, that's just great. But see your name (laughs) here on the clipboard? Every other Tuesday, you're going to get dinner on their back porch, okay? And it's not going to be Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's going to be a vegetable Mm -hmm. and a dinner. And if you can't do it, get somebody else to do it, because for a year, we're going to help her out. So I admire that woman as much as I admire Bill Gates. But I think that's a really important and, and very relatable point, is that not everybody's going to, you know, swim long distance. Um, not everybody's going to be a star athlete or whatever else um, the the comparison might be. But everybody can do something. Yeah. And everybody can both overcome their own challenges and then help others to yeah. overcome the challenges that they face. And, you know, how would you describe how your experience in long distance swimming has actually translated to how you meet challenges in your life? Well, You know, I I know that you know the story, Hillary, that I, like, uh, unfortunately, millions uh, suffered sexual abuse as a young teen. Um, My coach, the person who should have, uh, you know, put me up on a pedestal and helped send me out with character and with confidence into the world. He was an abuser and he really got a kick out of humiliating. And now I'm 70. And look at me. You know me. I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty happy. Uh, I'm, I feel very fortunate at this life I've gotten to live. And on the other hand, still, deep down, if I want to get real about it, I, there is an imprint from that humiliation that is still there, that that little girl, that young teen still can feel the low self-esteem and the anger, the anger at myself for not throwing him up against a wall and saying, I'm going to my mother and I'm going to the principal. Well, I think that even though I'm older and wiser now and deal with it in a in a more uh, holistic way, I think there was something of a resilience that told me right away, even while it was happening, I'm going to survive this. I'm going to thrive through it. This is not going to ruin my life. I won't let it. Um, I'm not going to go down. Boy, that's such a message, Diana, that needs to be heard by so many young people and not so young people. And the fact that you've talked about it and you've written about it and you've made it a part of your overall message and mission, because so many young people need to hear that. But this is an important part of, you know, who you are and what you've overcome and what the source of your resilience is and just your determination. Yes, that grit to keep going and not look back in a way that paralyzes you, but instead mobilizes you. Yeah, those are good words, paralyze and mobilize. You know, I want to switch gears to the oceans because nobody has spent more time in them than you have all over the world. And it's such a critical issue with the environment, with climate change. And I know that you are really going to tackle this like you've tackled everything else. You know, one of the things I've heard that you're really going to focus on is single-use plastics and what they're doing to the ocean and what they're doing to the, you know, animals that live in the ocean. But talk a little bit about how, given your personal immersion in the ocean, this new mission has arisen about what you want to do to try to use your voice and use your experience to literally help save our our world oceans. Yeah, I I, I guess you could say uh, that I fell madly in love 
with planet Earth by being immersed in its oceans. You know, uh, Carl Sagan spoke about it as that little magical blue speck that astronauts see from way up there. So um, Bonnie and I, when we got done with the Cuba swim, we started a walking initiative. And I know you're a big walker. We want you to come out yep, walking yep. with us. I would love that. There you go. So Everwalk is all about a new vision of lifestyle in America. And that is that everybody walks a mile every day. It doesn't matter what the weather Mm -hmm. is. You just do. You walk before work. You walk during lunch. You walk after school with your kids. But you walk a mile every day of the year virtually. And now we're going to sort of drive all that walking toward walking along the oceans. So next June, Mm. we're going to walk from Daytona to Miami. Oh, wow. That's fabulous. It's 200 miles. Some people will walk the whole way, 20 miles a day for 10 days. That's great. Most people will Mm -hmm. only want to walk a mile. They want to be part of it. But we're going to do a Uh 200 mile crusade. And all the way, we're going to have beach rallies with mayors, business people, Bill and Hillary Clinton, all kinds of uh, crazy (laughs) characters. And you're going to say, I promise I am going to reduce, if not eliminate, single-use plastics in my home, in my business, because 8 million tons of plastic around the world are now going into the Earth's oceans. They're suffocating the lungs of the planet. I would love to be part of that. I love walking. I love oceans. You're bringing them together. I am so happy to talk to you today. I could not think of anybody better to talk about this subject of resilience Stay safe, stay healthy, and I'm writing down that I'm going to see you walk on the beach uh, in Florida next June. There we go. Diana Nyad's autobiography is called Find a Way, a perfect title. And you can find more about her new initiative to protect the oceans at everwalk.com. You know, when we think about resilience, I think every one of us can reflect on our own lives, but certainly the lives of those near us. Think about the people you know who have shown great resilience. Who's your hero? Who's your example? See what you can do to help others, especially young people, understand that to keep going is really a mantra that everyone on this show, including myself, believe in. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin and Kathleen Russo with help from Huma Abedin, Nikki Etour, Oscar Flores, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Lauren Peterson, Rob Russo, and Lona Valmoro. Our engineer is Zach McNeese. Original music is by Forrest Gray. And a big thanks to Riverside FM. Just imagine... We needed a recording platform that could help us make a podcast during a pandemic, and boy, did they step up. If you like You and Me Both, spread the word. Don't keep it to yourself. You can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. It's a great way to help other people discover us. And we'd love to hear from you. So send us your questions, your comments, your ideas, or suggestions for future shows to youandmebothpod at gmail.com. Come back next week when I'm talking about turning grief into action with comedian Patton Oswalt and Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mom and a powerful advocate. Hope you'll join me. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. 
Listen to Woke F Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.